You may have a seat. Before I preach, I want to take a moment to talk about our opportunity to help some of our family in the body of Christ, particularly to the west of us, uh, Fort Myers, Naples, and other places that were impacted by Hurricane Ian. There are about 11 Christian Missionary Alliance churches in the areas that had the most devastation. The good news is that as far as we know, all of our pastors and their congregations got through the storm without injuries or death. So that's a good report. However, many church buildings, many homes of those brothers and sisters were damaged some significantly. Uh, Simon Lada, who has preached here at Oasis before, lives in Fort Myers. Um, On Facebook we saw he had some it seemed like not serious roof damage enough to let water into his home and now has mold issues. And many others have structural damage and are displaced or without power still. Uh, John Sapia and our district superintendent, Tom Flanders, are over today with some others from representing our district uh, to learn more about how we can step in to help our Christian Missionary Alliance family members and their mission to share Christ with those that are affected by the storm. And I will probably be going myself during the week uh, to offer comfort and encouragement to pastors and others uh, as I'm able. Some of you have been through significant hurricanes, and you know this is not going to be a situation where people quickly return to normal. Um, I won't recall all the damage. I'm sure you've seen the news reports, as I have. But in the midst of this is a great gospel opportunity. We will be informing you in the coming weeks of ways we can help. Uh, If you have ideas that you think we could help as a church, please share that with the church leadership. Uh, It may be that in the coming months we will make trips out there to help, uh, both with physical labor and needs, and to share the love and peace of Christ. Beyond the physical damage, the emotional stress is going to be extremely high for so many people. Losing a home is among one of the top stressful things that can happen to a person, whether they're a child or a senior citizen. And even those whose homes remain, many need significant repairs. Some people will lose close friends who choose not to rebuild and move to another part of the country or the state. Some will lose jobs because their place of employment is no longer there. In the midst of this very real emotional stress, there will be people turning to many things to numb the pain. Some will use drugs, either prescription or illegal drugs, to try and numb the pain. Some will turn to other types of sins in an attempt to forget the aching sadness they feel. Our prayer should be that for the hurting there will be a better option for them to turn to. That the gospel of Jesus will be heard by the hurting and those in pain, and that they will be convicted of their sins and their need for a Savior and put their full trust in Christ. Until we find out some more specific needs, you can give either through the church or through the CMA website, which is above here. Uh, They have a disaster relief fund. Um, And I would encourage you to do that. Uh, Also, pray for those who are impacted, as I am sure that many of you already have done. And we should pray about how God would use us, Oasis Church, to make a positive impact.
it is biblical for us to help other Christians who are in need. Kevin mentioned it. It was part of our D6 lesson this morning. That was in God's timing as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes about the Macedonian church and how they gave from an outpouring of joy. They gave beyond their means and even begged for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The Corinthian church should follow the example of the Macedonian church, Paul wrote, because when one believer is in abundance, he should help the one in need. So that later on, the favor may need to be returned. And so we all end up in some kind of need at some time, right? Whether it's financial, emotional, spiritual needs, we need to be willing to help each other. So Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8, 13 and 14. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. This generous giving should not only be applied to money, but to the gift of presence, for example. That is, being present for someone who needs encouragement or someone to listen. We should be generous in thinking of these churches, perhaps finding ways to communicate with them about how we're praying for them. So please keep all of this in mind. And as I said, we will be communicating ways to help that are more specific. We just haven't gotten them yet um, as people are still assessing their own needs. Um, So I want to take a moment. We're going to pray for our family in Christ that has been affected by the hurricane and also how the Lord could use us for his glory during this time. Lord, thank you that you are the sovereign God who was not surprised by this hurricane. You knew exactly where it would hit ahead of time. And so, Lord, uh, we know that you placed some of your people in the midst of it so that they somehow will glorify you. So, Lord, during this time, I pray, I pray for patience and comfort for your people who have been displaced or are dealing with lack of power um, in their homes or leaking roofs or whatever it might be, the extremely stressful situation that they find themselves in, Lord, can only be remedied through the peace that comes from you, the peace that passes all understanding. Lord, we lift them up and ask for your graciousness towards them today. As some of them are meeting, perhaps their church building is currently uninhabitable or without electricity. Maybe they're meeting outside. Maybe they're meeting with neighbors. But Lord, may your gospel message be heard this morning. May folks be encouraged by even the things we talked about this morning in D6. That they may have the joy of the Lord, even as Paul proclaimed it and lived it while he was in prison. May all of your people who are in pain and hurting, Lord, may still know the joy of the Lord that will strengthen them during this time. And Lord, may you show us, Oasis Church, real and powerful ways that we can be part of your mission to help our brothers and sisters in Christ and beyond that to bring the gospel message to the many hurting in that area. Lord, it's going to be a long haul for many of them. But you are a God of the long haul. And so we thank you. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, so now we'll get into the uh, sermon, which is continuing in this little passage that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Um, we've been examining Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 11, a passage that certainly makes some people uncomfortable. And the main reason it seems uncomfortable to many people is because this passage commands the destruction of several people groups by Israel as they enter the promised land. And my hope is that as we have been examining this and considering it within the framework of four key doctrines, that you and I would be more comfortable with what God commanded in these passages. So two Sundays ago, we considered this passage in light of the holiness of God. God is perfectly holy, and apart from sin, so he cannot forever tolerate sin. Sin must must be punished in time. Although God is patient or forbearing and does not always punish sin immediately as soon as it happens. By the way, that's a good thing. Because if God punished every sin the moment it happened, none of us would be around here to talk about God's holiness this morning. So God is holy, but he's also patient. However, since he is a just God, he cannot allow sin to go on forever without recourse. And last week, we considered the concept of sin and the danger of sin, which leads nicely into this week's topic, which is the wrath of God. Because ultimately, the wrath of God is burning against sin. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at God's sovereignty in all things, including salvation. So we're going to begin by looking at the passage again, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 11. And it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you 
today. Now, in the spot I just read, in three places, the wrath of God is revealed. And the first one is in verse 2. When the Lord your God gives them over to you, you shall, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Verse 4, they will, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger, the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And in verse 10, he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So God's wrath is revealed in verse 2, verse two in the devotion of those enemies of God to complete destruction with no mercy. Israel is warned, if they do not do this, they would soon be the objects of God's wrath because they would be turned by those pagan people. We see that in verse 4. And he says he destroys those who hate him in verse 10. All these are examples of what triggers God's wrath. Idolatry, wickedness, violation of the covenant, outright hate of God. All of these things will stir up his wrath against the guilty. Now, as we begin talking about God's wrath, we probably ought to define it, right? So I'm going to give you two different definitions that I've found, um, and they both work in their own way. The first one is from the Lexham Theological Word Book, and it says this, The wrath of God, or divine wrath, are concepts used in both the Old Testament and New Testament that invite readers to consider the anger of God in contrast to his mercy. The concept of divine wrath emphasizes the danger of opposing the divine will and expresses in human terms the emotional reaction provoked in God by sin and rebellion. That's one definition. The second definition is from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, where it gives this definition of wrath or wrath of God. Uh, It's used to express several emotions, including anger, indignation, vexation, grief, bitterness, and fury. It is the emotional response to perceived wrong and injustice. Both humans and God express wrath. When used of God, wrath refers to his absolute opposition to sin and evil. When used of humans, however, wrath is one of those evils that is to be avoided. You see the difference? You and I are not to have wrath. But why, if it is bad for us, is it good for God? Because in God's case, his wrath is always perfectly aligned with his attributes, like holiness and justice and forbearance or patience. His love and all the other attributes of God are in perfect sync or synchronization with his wrath. For us, Wrath can only end up being sinful because inevitably our sinful parts will infect any sense of holy wrath or anger we may have. People really cannot have righteous anger in the perfect sense that God can. People say they do sometimes. But James 1.20 says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if someone goes around saying, well, I'm angry because I'm righteously angry, probably not. While we speak of what it means that God has wrath towards sin and sinners, we must also say some things that God's wrath is not. 
in mythology throughout history, people have invented all kinds of gods. You've probably read about these if you've been in school as a child or as a teenager. Um, and these gods of man's invention were often known for being, for lack of a better word, emotionally unstable. And that wasn't a good thing. One of the legends was one of the gods got so angry he had to be restrained by the other gods. He was throwing such a tantrum. The anger of the gods was not necessarily consistent. And this is why people feared these gods and took special care to keep them pleased. So they had temples and idols and they gave gifts and sacrifices to keep these gods appeased. But these emotionally unstable gods had no absolute standard. So people rightly lived in fear. Since at any moment, these gods may decide that what was good yesterday is bad today. Or vice versa. And even if you did everything right, they may just have a temper tantrum. And this may be in the form of an earthquake or a storm or a flood or something like that. We know that even people who are explosive are not fun to be around. It's like walking on pins and needles to keep them happy. Or their wrath will be kindled. That's why the Proverbs warn about being around people like that. For example, Proverbs 22, 24, and 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Many Proverbs and other scriptures warn about men of wrath. How much worse, then, must people have feared these man-made gods who they believed would act wrathfully towards them? God's wrath towards sin is nothing like that wrath of those mythological gods and nothing like the wrath of people who cannot control their own emotions. The wrath of God, I hope you will agree with me before we part ways this morning, is beautiful. It's beautiful. And that is because the wrath of God is coupled with his mercy and with his love, and it is because the wrath of God reveals his desire for absolute perfection. One commentator said, God's wrath is not capricious, which means given to sudden or unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. God's wrath is not capricious, but is always a moral and ethical reaction to sin. And another pointed out that the Old Testament holds the doctrine of the wrath of God in balance with three other doctrines, his forbearance or patience, his love, and his readiness to forgive. God's wrath in the Old Testament was mostly focused on Israel when they violated his covenant and also on the enemies of Israel who were God's own enemies. These were God-haters. They mocked him outrightly and all his wrath was on them. But really, God's wrath ultimately is against all sin and all sinners. Not one sin is too small to merit the wrath of God. We also are enemies of God before we come to Christ. Before any of us put faith in Jesus, we really were no different than the God-hating pagans that the Israelites were to wipe out in Deuteronomy 7. We can think of God's wrath in two acts, if you will. The first act is his present ongoing wrath against sin. And the second is God's final wrath on the rebellious, wicked people who refuse to ever repent and believe in Jesus. The first act is partly what we see in Deuteronomy 7. 
and part of what we see all around us in the world today. And his wrath is carried out presently in two major ways. His wrath is carried out by people that he created to be his agents of wrath, or it is carried out by other created means that he's created. In Deuteronomy 7, he's commanding Israel to act as agents of his wrath. They are created by him, and he has chosen them for this task. There are other human agents of God's wrath today. In Romans 13, believers are commanded to be good citizens who place themselves under the jurisdiction of the governing authorities or the civil authorities. The reason is that they are in their place of authority, according to Scripture, because God instituted proper authority in our governance, and also because the governing authorities are God's servants. Romans 13, 4, he, the governing authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is, a, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, does this mean that we are to obey the law even if we do not like the current government leadership at any given time? Yes. And the only exception to this is if following the law of man is in contradiction of God's commands. Many people are beginning to face difficult choices in this arena. Whether it is the government in authority or their employer in authority, I believe that more and more conscientious believers are going to be facing these very difficult choices. Yet in the end, we may need to say with the apostles, should we obey man rather than God? Now, it's interesting that even in at least one writing I found as I was studying for this sermon, that there's folks that try to say, well, I want, God's wrath has no emotional connection. In other words, they may say, just as a judge may not have an emotion towards someone as they give the sentence the law prescribes, God is not emotional at all in the case of his wrath. And people are trying to make this distinction that really isn't there. And, and it would be hard to prove if you faced some of these passages, like Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. Or some translations say he's angry with sin and sinners all day. Nahum 1.2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. He feels indignation or anger every day. He is a jealous God. Remember that I mentioned in a previous message, this is not unfounded jealousy, like a boyfriend might have because another guy opened the door for his girl. This is the kind of jealousy for what is good and right, the jealousy that a man may rightly have for the loyalty of his wife, not in a sick way of restricting her to stay at home and not communicate with anyone, but in the sense of wanting her to himself and him alone within the marriage bond. So certainly I think we can say that God's wrath is linked to his anger towards sin and his jealousy for what is holy. Now a king or a judge may also have a duty to carry out the wrath. It may be possible they have no emotional attachment to carrying out their duty. 
And that would be an example of a judge saying, you're convicted of murder. This is the sentence the law prescribes. And he doesn't have any emotion about it. That's possible. But make no mistake. A righteous judge not only carries out the sentence because of his duty, but because of his love for what is right. We cannot say the only motivation is a righteous disposition, nor can we say the only motivation is duty. A truly righteous person carries out both what is right and what his duty requires. In the case of the rebellious against God, it can also be said that the guilty are intentionally provoking the wrath of God. The sinner by nature hates God and therefore has no respect for his laws and statutes. Now, I mentioned earlier that there is a present ongoing wrath that God has towards sin. And I said this could be the civil authority who are supposed to uphold righteousness by punishing crime. God's wrath is also revealed in other ways. And one is through what we may call natural events that occur. Things can happen to people that are a result of God's wrath, and yet we are cautioned not to look at every misfortune of others and assume that they deserved God's wrath more than us. And that is why they suffered. We, ought, we like to do that, don't we? Oh, yeah, see what happened to him? I, yep, I know how he was living. That's why it happened. Better be careful with that. Jesus himself gave this warning in Luke chapter 13. He said there were some, uh, it says there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse than sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus took a current event of his time and used it to teach the, person, the people a lesson. Be careful that you don't say they deserve punishment more than I did. And that's why they had that happen. And so we must be careful in judging what has happened to someone. And an example perfectly for us this week is the hurricane. Could we rephrase what Jesus said in our own context? Those who were impacted by the hurricane, were they worse sinners than the rest of you? Because they suffered in this way? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the rest? You meaning you? <laughs> so we need to be careful about these things. Could God's wrath have been part of it? He can do whatever he likes. So of course this may include natural disasters. In fact, Scripture makes clear that God often did judge in those ways. Yet we are safe to say that since we... Are we safe to say that since we escaped, then we must be more righteous? We better not. But in the Old Testament, sometimes God's wrath was at the same time a display of his mercy. This happened when the wrath of God caused people to respond in repentance. From the Lexham Theological Word Book, I found this, and it, it really resonated with me. There can be no doubt that divine wrath plays an important conceptual role for ancient Israel, early Judaism, and early Christianity. However, the exact nature of that role is unclear. At one level, the frequent reminder of the punishment of God if his people transgressed could simply be an attempt to hold sinful acts in check. But more profoundly, the wrath of God serves to remind people that God wishes their best. 
and is willing to take physical action to inhibit the self-destructiveness of human rebellion. Said another way, God's wrath is the twin of God's mercy. Mercy without correction is mere permission. And mere permission never has the best interests of the person in mind. God's wrath, then, is God's mercy. And God's mercy is because the nature of God's love, sometimes made known in God's punishment of wrongdoing and wrongdoers. God is willing to take physical action to inhibit the self-destruction of human rebellion. Let's think about that for a moment. Does this not sound like a good parent? Doesn't a good parent do things sometimes even motivated possibly by anger that are designed to keep their child from continuing on a self-destructive path? I think every parent has done things like this if they are a good parent. I know my parents took action sometimes that if I were doing something that was self-destructive, and though I may not have thought about it at the time, I can now be thankful I was kept from doing some really stupid and dangerous things. You may have further noticed that some children respond more quickly to correction than others. For the one who is easily corrected, there's less need for discipline. For other children, it takes more and sometimes more severe discipline. And still, this is done to protect the child. Yet none of us likes being corrected at the time, do we? Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A loving parent does that. They train their children, sometimes by taking correction that is painful at the time. Mercy without correction is mere permission, and mere permission never has the best interests of the person in mind. Now, another way the wrath of God is played out in real time all around us is by him removing the restraints of sin. In other words, he just gives people over to their own desires, and that in and of itself is a revealing of the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I read the rest of that chapter already recently, but I commend the end of chapter 1 of Romans to you when you're trying to remember why is it that the world seems to be getting more and more sinful around us. Go to Romans 1.18 and read the rest of the chapter, and if you've got to read it again and again, read it until it's drilled into you that that's the reason that the world seems to be getting more and more exceedingly sinful. The wrath of God is revealed how God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, verse 24 of Romans 1. He gave them up to dishonorable passions, Romans 1.26. He gave them up to a debased mind, Romans 1.28. They were then filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, and so on. The wrath of God is revealed in sinful people becoming more and more sinful. So we have spoken about the present ongoing wrath of God. Let us now look to the final wrath of God on the rebellious. In the end, there will be two categories. 
The first category will be sinners who learned of the seriousness of their rebellion, repented, and put faith in Jesus, and therefore are spared from the wrath of God. And the second category will be sinners who hated God and never turned from their rebellion and were given over to their sinful desires, and thereby they heaped upon themselves God's wrath, and they will be the recipients of God's wrath. This wrath we see forecasted in many places in Scripture. One of them is 1 Thessalonians 2.16. It says that the Gentiles are filling up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is the wrath of God, represented by the bowls of wrath detailed in Revelation. And in case you may be one of those who has tried to separate the Father from the Son, as people have been doing for a long time, saying, well, the Father of the Old Testament is the wrathful one. The Son is the loving and forgiving one. Remember that the final wrath of God is referred to in Revelation as the wrath of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. Jesus. Revelation 6.16. The people were so frightened and overcome by the wrath of God, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of who? The Lamb. Jesus is indeed the one who will carry out the wrath of God on the unrepentant. And the wrath of God is often referred to as the cup of wrath. Isaiah and Jeremiah both referred to God's judgment upon sin as the cup of wrath. This wrath is the wrath that no one will be glad to face. Those that mock God now and hate him and refuse to obey his laws, they boldly mock his face. And yet our passage in Deuteronomy says, he will not be slack with those who hate him. He will repay to their face. In other words, the wicked who sinned right in front of God with no fear, with no reverence for a holy God, will have God's repayment, and God will do it face to face. And what do we already know about the ability of sinful men to see God face to face? No one can do it and live. No, you cannot in the end stand boldly before God in your sin and continue to mock him outright to his face. He will repay, and he will repay by pouring out the cup of his wrath. This is the cup of wrath the prophets spoke of. The day will come when all unrepentant sinners will drink from that cup. This is the cup our Lord spoke of in Mark 14, 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus took the wrath of God. He took the cup of the wrath of God. I love the song in Christ alone. I've been told that many of the radio versions of this song have left out a very important verse that says, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. And I'm going to wrap up the sermon. We're going to move right into communion. I asked for the change because I felt this reminder may bring us to a time of reflection with perhaps a little more appreciation 
for what Christ has done. So if the worship team wants to start coming and if the deacons would come and prepare to distribute the um, communion and I'll keep talking. In Deuteronomy 7, we see God's wrath spoken of in three instances. That the sinful pagan nations were to receive the wrath of God delivered by human agents he appointed. God's wrath is revealed in verse 2 in the devotion of those enemies of God to complete destruction with no mercy. Israel is warned that if they do not do this, they would soon be the objects of God's wrath because they would be turned by those pagans to idolatry. We see that in verse 4, he says he destroys those who hate him in verse 4, or in verse 10, rather. All of those examples of what triggers God's wrath, idolatry, wickedness, violation of the covenant, outright hate for God, all of these things will stir up his wrath against the guilty. God's wrath is present and ongoing in at least these three ways we considered. Human agency, such as those representing law and order in our government. They are agents of God's wrath and do not bear the sword in vain. Second, God's wrath is revealed in the unrighteousness of sinners. Since they have chosen to sin, they are given over to more sin. The restraints are removed, so they heap more and more wrath upon themselves. And third, though through means that God controls, people may experience his wrath through the events that happen in the world. Amos 3, 6 says, Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. People may experience the wrath of God in these ways, However, for those in Christ, we do not need to fear the wrath of God. As difficult as it is to experience the present ongoing wrath of God, in the end, his final wrath on the rebellious will be terrible. Unrepentant sinners will drink from the wine cup of the fury of God. And yet, for those who have put their faith in Christ, we can rest with assurance of our salvation that though we indeed deserve to drink from that cup, there's one who drank from it on our behalf. Last week, I said the greatest example of the wrath of God ever witnessed until now was the death of Jesus on the cross, where God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, and he took the sin of the world and took that wrath on behalf of all who would believe in him.